Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online, later on demand, or listening to our podcast, we're excited to start a new year with you. January is a great time to refocus and re-energize your spiritual journey. God is ready, willing, and more than able to do something new in you this year, and I promise you won't want to miss out on that. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. Our team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people just like you to become more like Jesus. There is nothing more important in life than your relationship with Him, and we are committed to helping you grow in your love and devotion to Him. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. We're just like you, imperfect people on a journey. We're allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives learning to live like Him, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of His followers, well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking those same questions and looking for answers too, so I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Welcome to the second installment in our series, Greater, The Supremacy of Christ in Hebrews. Uh, for the next now 11 weeks, we will be working our way through the profound truths found in this book written by, as Pastor Michelle taught us last week, who knows who. Uh, clearly, the early church knew the author, but that information was lost pretty quickly to the annals of time. At the time it was written, in the mid-60s, not the 1960s, but the actual 60s, uh, the early church was made up of mostly second-generation Christians who had not known personally or witnessed the works and ministry of Jesus when he walked the earth. They had been led to Christ by those who had known Christ face-to-face. They were true believers who had been persecuted for their faith. And despite the persecution, they had uh, faithfully ministered to the needs of other sufferers. But now, false teachers were beginning to rise up in the church. And they were in danger of forgetting the true message the first generation leaders had taught them. They weren't growing spiritually, which put them in danger of going backwards. Uh, when it comes to Christianity... It is one or the other. You are either growing or going backward. There is no standing still. And for these mostly Jewish Christians, going backward meant returning to their old religion. That is the old covenant law that was far more familiar to them. The founder of the Christian Research Institute and author of Kingdom of the Cults, the late Dr. Walter Martin, once quipped that the book of Hebrews was written by a Hebrew to other Hebrews, telling the Hebrews to stop acting like Hebrews. 
which is a tongue-in-cheek way of saying that these Hebrew Christians were in danger of forsaking the grace of Jesus, in essence, trading Jesus for the ritualism of Judaism. And it is Jesus that, who sets uh, true Christianity apart, not only from Judaism, but from all world religions. When you really experience Jesus and what he has to offer you, everything else that competes for your attention begins to fall by the wayside. Now, as a side note, we should note that while Jesus is God, uh, that's made very clear throughout the New Testament. Uh, but in Hebrews, the author focuses on his role as the Son of God. But don't let that diminish in any way how you think of Jesus as God. Uh, in this case, uh, in Hebrews, the author was trying to prove a different point. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Father, now as we come to your word, we just would ask that the distractions fall by the wayside, that uh, technology continue to work, and that you would do your perfect work in us. Speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, uh, I got a new car. It was not just new to me, it was new, new. It had that new car scent that smells so good. It had eight miles on the odometer when I got it. And let me tell you, it was a far cry from the 1968 Plymouth that my dad gave me in high school to drive. My new car had so many bells and whistles that it took me about a month to figure them all out. For example, we were eating dinner one night out in the boonies with some friends, and on the way home, I was able to use my brights for the first time. We don't have that many opportunities to use our brights in the city. So I flipped on my brights, and after a while, I noticed that they were periodically dimming and, uh, for a bit and then going bright again, dim, bright, dim, bright. And I'm thinking to myself, is there something wrong with my new car? And then it dawned on me that that little blue A on my dashboard stood for automatic. My brights were automatic. When the camera sensed a car coming toward us, it would do the work of dimming the lights for me and then undimming them after it passed. I mean, it doesn't seem that hard to just push the lever back and forth myself, but if the car wants to do it itself, I'm game. Uh, another feature that I've learned to love and hate is lane assist. Uh, when you are driving down the road, the car's cameras identify the lane you are in by the lines on the road, and it will basically take control of the steering wheel, which you can override if you want to, and it will keep you in the lane if you begin to drift out of it, while warning a flashing, uh, flashing a warning light on the windshield with a beep. It is a bit annoying at times, because sometimes I'm intentionally drifting to stay away from an oversized semi or something like that, and then it's like I'm wrestling with my car for control. But overall, it's a safety feature designed to keep me from drifting into danger, like an oncoming car. So I leave it on even though uh, I wouldn't otherwise have to because I can, just like everyone else, become distracted a bit while I'm driving. Well, as we move into chapter 2 of Hebrews today, we're going to begin with a drift alert from the author. Now, here's what I mean. In verse 1, he or she, since we don't know, he or she writes, so we, so we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard. 
or we may drift away from it. Now, this is the first of five admonitions or warnings we find scattered throughout the chapters of Hebrews. We'll talk about the others in more detail as we get to them. Uh, But I want to look at them together for a moment so we can get a sense of the overall message of these warnings. Uh, Here in chapter 2, the warning is about drifting from the word, which is a warning about neglecting the word of God. As we'll see in chapter 3, the warning is against having a hard heart, which leads to doubting the word of God. Chapter 5 warns us against spiritual sluggishness or laziness, which leads to dullness toward the word. Chapter 10 warns against choosing to continue in sin, uh, which leads to despising God's word. And last, chapter 12 warns that refusing to listen to God leads to defying God's word. All five of these together paint a picture that we might miss if we only looked at them one at a time. And the picture is one of trajectory. At the point that I come to Christ, uh, you come to Christ, we are saved and made righteous through the blood of Jesus. Uh, We are what scholars call positionally righteous. Uh, Jesus' blood is the justification of our positional righteousness. That's how God sees us from that point on, through the blood of Jesus. But as we all know, we are not practically righteous. We still live in these sinful bodies and our flesh has to be trained to choose righteousness over sin. Jesus over self. We call this process of becoming like Jesus the process of sanctification. So we are saved, but not like Jesus. And our life's goal is to become like Jesus. That's the target. Let's say it looks like this. Everything I am is to aim for becoming like Jesus. What the author is describing is a different trajectory. We start out aiming for the practical righteousness we find when we become like Jesus, but neglect changes where we are aiming for. We begin drifting off target. We change our trajectory. Maybe not by much at first, but over time, not much becomes a little more. Drifting or neglect leads to doubt which leads to dullness, which leads to despising, and then finally defying the word of God. Yeah, as you can see, drifting leads to nothing good very quickly. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what causes me to drift? Whether we want to admit it or not, as theologian Michael Kruger writes, there is a part of each of us that tends to be drawn to things other than Jesus. Left to themselves, our hearts tend to drift away from God. Now, just about anything can be that something that causes you to drift. Suffering does a great job of turning your eyes from Jesus to yourself. Busyness keeps us distracted, which leads to drift. Sin leads to drift. Uh, Good things can lead to drift just as much as bad things lead to drift. I mean, have you ever been so consumed by your job that you didn't have anything left for Jesus? Or so much, so focused on money that you ended up building an earthly kingdom instead of investing in an eternal one? Fear can lead to drift. Anything that draws your heart and mind away from Jesus is incredibly dangerous, spiritually speaking. And we are all tempted by something, probably some things. 
So to avoid drift, we need to pay attention to the gospel of Jesus. Neglect leads to drift. But that isn't the only reason to pay attention to the truth found in, in Jesus. We will also be held accountable for that truth. Uh, verse 2. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm. And every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? Now we are New Testament Christians, which means that we believe that Jesus came, fulfilled the law of Moses or the old covenant, and gave us a new covenant, which is true. That tends to put our focus on a warm, fuzzy Jesus who loves us instead of the God of the Old Testament who seems to be all about wrath and judgment. But we can't understand our new covenant apart from or without understanding the message of the old covenant, which as we see in verse 2 was delivered by angels, which is tying into chapter 1. And, and we know, although it doesn't say it here, that the message of the old covenant was also given through the prophets. But God didn't lower the bar when he gave us the new covenant through Jesus. He raised the bar. Uh, the old covenant focused on external obedience to the laws of God. All 615 of them. Uh, the new covenant focuses on internal obedience. Which leads to external obedience. And it's one law. The law of love. The love others like I, Jesus, have loved you law supersedes all those other laws because the bar is higher. What does love require of me can't be done with a crappy attitude. But almost all of the 615 Old Testament laws can. But even with all of that said, if God held people accountable to the lower laws, it is folly to think that he wouldn't hold us accountable to the, our higher law. He is the same God. His standards of righteousness and holiness haven't changed. We have even more reason than our old covenant brothers and sisters to stay faithful. We have Jesus. Something, or I guess someone, they didn't have. And our message was given to us by God himself in the form of Jesus. Not through angels or prophets. That makes us more culpable for rejecting the message of Jesus than they were for rejecting the Old Testament law. Paying attention to Jesus is our way out of judgment. And not only that, but in verse 4, and God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. Not only did we get our message from Jesus himself, but there were witnesses. We call them apostles. And as if that weren't enough, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, giving us the power to live faithfully to the word and gifting us for the work that he has set before us. Whenever we see the Spirit at work around us, God is still reminding us of this truth even today. So pay attention and don't drift away. Now as we move into verse 5, here in the New Living Translation, we see the words 
and furthermore, tying us back to the subject of angels from chapter 1. In fact, if you just skipped the first four verses of chapter 2 and read verse 14 of chapter 1 straight into verse 5, the message would still totally make sense. It's as if the author called a timeout to make sure that everyone was on the same page, that all of our assumptions were aligned and then picked up where he left off, which is to now answer the question, is Jesus also superior to the angels in his humanity? Now, here's where we stand. Christ is greater than the angels, a superior to the angels, and by virtue of our birthright as inheritors of salvation, we have a higher calling than the angels. Just not yet. For now, the angels might be considered superior to us. So, and furthermore, it is not angels who will control the future world we are talking about. For in one place, the scriptures say, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet, for a little while, you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. Now, in just a moment, the author is going to bring this back around to the humanity of Jesus. But in order for us to understand his argument, we have to first understand what it means to be human. What are mere mortals that you should think about them? We have glory, dignity, and honor because we were made in the image of God. We are not little g-gods. The world does not revolve around us. In fact, we've done a pretty good job of messing up this world. But nevertheless, as image bearers, while we were made a little lower than the angels for a season which makes us inferior to them for now, uh, we were given far greater privileges than the angels because one day we will rule this world with Christ and our responsibilities will include the judging of angels. And as image bearers, we reflect, as we see at the end of verse 7, the glory of God in a way that angels never will. We reflect, uh, Michael Kruger writes, we reflect something about him that no other created being does. Each one of us is a little reflection of him. Not only do we reflect the glory of God, but we were created to rule God's word. Verse 8, in the design of the original creation story, Adam and Eve were both given the, responsi the responsibility and authority to rule creation. But then sin put a hitch in the get-along of our earthly dominion. And Satan became the inheritor of the earth for a season. A long season of about 6,000 years, but still a season in light of eternity. Now with that as our backdrop, even Christ's humanity did not make him inferior to the angels like we are now. Because it was his humanity that allowed him to regain our lost dominion. As Warren Wiersbe puts it, man was crowned with glory and honor, but he lost his crown and became a slave to sin. Jesus Christ has regained that glory and honor. Bring us to verse 9. 
What, do we, what we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now, at the time Hebrews was written, the heresy of Gnosticism was beginning to creep into the doctrine of the church. In a nutshell, the Gnostics believed that Jesus didn't come to earth as flesh and blood, but as a spirit. Because as a divine being, he couldn't take on the limitations of the flesh. Now, as a side note, we, we know that this heresy was still corrupting church doctrine about 30 years later because the Apostle John wrote about it in his letters. But Jesus did take on the limitations of the earth of the flesh. It was by, by becoming human that he was able to, as the writer puts it here, taste death for everyone. Verse 10 takes this thought a little further. God for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. Now here we see that it was Jesus' humanity that made him, as the New Living Translation puts it, a perfect leader. Other translations tell us that he was made perfect through his suffering. This reference is not to his moral perfection. He was already morally perfect. But his human suffering made him the perfect representative for us. He became more effective because he understood firsthand. Through suffering, he became more sympathetic to our fallen condition as our high priest. And this is why, listen up Gnostics, his humanity is as important as his divinity for our salvation. If he was not really human, then he could not really represent us. And if he could not represent us, he couldn't save us. Now, as our perfect representative, Jesus is the pioneer, or as we'll find in chapter 12, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as our author, we have union with him. We are bonded to him in three ways. First, as we saw in verse 9, we are bonded to him because his death was our death. Uh, the Apostle Paul puts it like this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So his death is our death. He died so we wouldn't have to. Then second, still in verse 9, his glory is our glory, which is the future that awaits us as, uh, as we saw in the first part of verse 10. And then last, here in verse 11, his holiness is our holiness. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God... I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. He also said, I will put my trust in him. That is, I and the children God has given me. So it's this positional holiness that we, we talked about earlier that makes us part of the family. In these closing five verses, the writer unpacks how Jesus made all of this that we've already talked about happen. Verse 14. 
Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. So first, he became flesh and blood. The emphasis here is that he actually became fully human. He wasn't just a spirit floating around the earth. He wasn't just God in a bod like he animated an empty shell of a body. He became fully human. He became human so he could die as a human. And in doing so, break the power of Satan over death. Now to be clear, only God has the power over death. He is the only one with the power to give life and take it away. What this phrase means is that Satan has the power over death in that he influences the thing that causes death. That is rebellion, sin. Death is the penalty for sin. The only way to defeat death is to defeat sin. And that's why Jesus bore our sin. And in doing so, verse 15, only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So in bearing our sin, Jesus set us free, both from the bondage of sin and the fear of death. Death no longer has a hold over those who follow Christ, or maybe should have no hold over us. Basically, Satan no longer has any authority over us. Christ has rendered the tools of his trade worthless when it comes to believers. Now we know that Christ became flesh and blood because verse 16 tells us, uh, we also know that the son did not come to help the angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. He didn't take on the nature of angels to save the fallen angels. He stepped even lower to become a man. And not just a man, but a Jew. The seed of Adam among the most despised and hated then and now as we see every day in our news feeds. Verse 17. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. He was made in every respect like us, meaning that he didn't live his earthly life in a protective bubble. It wasn't just a lifestyle of ease and earthly splendor. He was born into poverty, and his early life was spent on the run from those who hated him. He knows what it means to be mocked, bullied, and mistreated. He suffered just like we have throughout our lives. That's what made in every respect like us means in this verse. It's this shared experience of his humanity that makes him the greatest high priest. Because even now he stands at the right hand of the throne of God the Father interceding on our behalf. He's like, God, I get how hard this one is for Chris. I know he messed up again, but that's not really who he is. He's forgotten for a moment. He'll get it right next time. And I've already paid for this one so he can have another chance. You see, verse, eight, you see verse 18, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. He gets us. Isn't that awesome? 
he understands and puts that understanding to work on our behalf. He knows and understands why those things that draw your heart away from him draw your heart away from him. He knows better than you do. They are surprises to him. He understands you down to your DNA. So to get back to the question, is Jesus the human better than, greater than the angels? The answer is yes. In becoming man, he didn't become inferior to the angels. He accomplished something that they could never accomplish. He made it possible for you and me to share in his glory. The Apostle Paul sums up perfectly what this means for us in his letter to the Philippian church. In Philippians chapter 2, he writes, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What's that attitude? Well, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have the same attitude as Christ. Live out this attitude more and more as you become like Jesus, keeping your eye on the prize so you don't drift off target. We have a high calling, a holy calling. So live it well, image bearer. Live it well. Let's pray. Father, as the, the hymn writer has written, we are prone to wander. Prone to do our own thing. We, we all have things that draw our hearts away from you. We pray, Father, that uh, you would give us the strength, the power, the self-discipline that we need to render those things powerless over us. We want to be like Jesus. We want to become like Jesus. We want to live out our holy calling to love like Jesus loved faithfully. But we can only do it by your power and strength. So thank you that you are greater than all. And we worship you, the name above all names. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. The people who call Dayspring their home church make this ministry possible. Their faithful giving is proof of God's work in their lives and they want to pay it forward so you can experience the same life-changing presence of Jesus. 
For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail us a check at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God will give you opportunities to use your influence for the glory of His kingdom. One easy way to do that is to share this service with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. All of these simple acts of kindness on your part, God uses to plant seeds in other people's lives. So keep sowing.